You may have noticed that as a church, we no longer celebrate Halloween. It's a holiday that rivals, if not surpasses, Christmas in popularity, but a holiday that many find offensive. Now, for a number of years, we tried to address that by hosting a Neowala party, which is Halloween spelled backwards, but we don't even do that any longer. And when you look at the word Halloween, we discover that Halloween itself is a contraction of uh, All Hallows Evening, which is the evening before All Hallows Day or All Saints Day. And All Saints Day was instituted back in the 6th century to celebrate the lives of saints, both living and dead, who didn't have a special feast day of their own. Now, we may no longer celebrate Halloween, but that doesn't mean we no longer honor the saints. In fact, this morning we begin a study of a letter to the saints, the saints in Colossae. And we begin by simply noting that a letter was written to them. Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, your brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now the book of Acts closed with the Apostle Paul in Rome, a prisoner in house arrest. He wasn't free to travel, but he was free to minister to all who came to him. And for two years, he preached and taught openly. He also used that time to write what we now call his prison epistles, the letters of Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, and Philippians. So the letter we begin today is one that was written from house arrest in Rome while Timothy was there ministering to Paul and is addressed to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Now I'm sure you realize that when Paul speaks of saints, he's not referring to a special class of Christians. All Christians are called out from the world and set apart for service to Christ. And that is what a saint is. We are all saints. And we are all brethren. We've been adopted back into the family of God and are therefore related to one another. And I trust, like the brethren in Colossae, we too are faithful brethren. Now, Paul is actually writing this letter as a stranger. He didn't establish the church in Colossae, nor did he personally know many of the saints who lived there. In the second chapter, he will say that he wants them and those who are in Laodicea and all who had not personally seen his face, to know of his struggle on their behalf. And so from that and the fact that there's no mention of Colossae in Acts, we can assume that Paul had never even been there. But 
Colossae was only 100 miles from Ephesus in the Lycus Valley near the cities of Laodicea and Heropolis. And we learn in Acts that while Paul was in Ephesus for three years, all who lived in Asia Minor, modern Turkey, had heard the word of the Lord. The gospel had spread from Ephesus throughout the entire province. The church in Colossae, therefore, was probably established by someone who heard the gospel from Paul while he was teaching in Ephesus some five years before the letter was written around 62 A.D. Now, Colossae had been an important city during the Persian and Greek empires. Herodotus, writing in the 5th century B.C., called Colossae a great city of Phrygia. And Xenophon, in the 4th century B.C., described it as a populous city, wealthy and large. But as happens often in communities around here, when the road system was changed, the city was bypassed. And it became quickly overshadowed by Laodicea, which became the political center of the valley, and Heropolis, which became the trade center. And by Paul's day, it was a very insignificant market town, making it what has been called the least important town to which Paul ever wrote. But he did write a letter to the saints living there, and that makes Colossae important to us. This is true in spite of the fact that the letter to the Colossians is very similar to his letter to the Ephesians. In fact, both were written at the same time and delivered by the same man, Tychicus. It's even been estimated that three-fifths of what we find in Colossians can also be found in Ephesians. Many of the topics uh, treated are common to both the person of Christ, the nature of the church, ethical duties of believers, and relationships in the home and community. Colossians, however, is more direct and specific and concrete than is Ephesians, which tends to be a little more abstract at times and a little more general in nature. That was for good reason, because Ephesians was written to be circulated among all the churches in Asia Minor, while Colossians was written specifically to the saints in Colossae. Still, we can learn a lot from a letter Paul wrote to an insignificant city to which the gospel had come. Picking up at verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. 
Paul noted in his letter that he continually expressed thanks for the church in Colossae. That he was pleased to hear of their faith in Christ and their love for the saints. Faith and love had come because of the hope laid up in heaven which they had discovered was theirs when they heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news that the Son of God had paid the penalty for their sins and had made it possible for them to get back into fellowship eternally with their Creator. When they discovered that, they responded with faith in the Son of God, entrusting their salvation to Him and no doubt, no doubt trusting Him for each day's needs as well. And they began to really love each other realizing that they would be spending eternity together so they better get to know each other and love each other. Faith, hope, and love, all three, were evident in Colossae. And for that, Paul was thankful. He was also grateful for the fact that the gospel was bearing fruit and increasing in Colossae just as it does everywhere. You know, when the truth of the gospel is planted, it brings increase. It bears fruit. In the lives of the believers, it changes them. And its impact increases as more and more people are brought under its influence. That's the nature of the gospel. It grows naturally. If it takes root in your life, it will grow. And if you understand the grace of God in truth, it will bear fruit. Obviously, then, if you are not bearing fruit and growing spiritually, if you're no different today than you were six years ago or 20 years ago when you first met Christ, something's not right. Something's wrong. Something is inhibiting the truth from taking root in your life. Or maybe the seed was quite simply never, never planted. But if the seed is planted and care is given to the life as it appears, it will grow naturally. There won't be a need for new ideas and programs to stimulate personal growth. You'll just continue steadfast in the Apostles' Doctrine, fellowship, teaching, breaking of bread, prayer. You'll be fed and you'll grow. No need. No need for the latest ideas. Neither will there be a need for Madison Avenue methods or the latest church growth techniques to stimulate congregational growth. Growth in the lives of saints and growth in the body will take place naturally, or perhaps we should say supernaturally, as God gives the increase he desires. Now, we do sometimes get concerned when we compare ourselves with others and discover that we're not growing 
in the same way they are, personally or collectively. But Paul makes it clear in 2 Corinthians 10 that we are not to compare ourselves with each other, especially with those who commend themselves. He also points out that we are to simply work within the measure of the sphere of influence God has apportioned to us, that God puts us where he wants us. And if we allow him to do so, he does through us what he wants to do. But still, if the seed is being properly planted and the life that springs from it is properly nurtured, the seed will bear fruit and the gospel will spread. That's happening here as it was in Colossae. And for that, Paul was very thankful. However, there was a problem in Colossae. And Paul heard about that because the preacher had told on them. Verses 7 and 8. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. All we know about Epaphras is found here in Colossians and then in the little book of Philemon. And here in verse 7, we learn that the Colossians had heard the gospel from Epaphras, who Paul calls a beloved fellow bondservant and faithful servant of Christ. The word for servant is the word we translate most often as deacon or minister. Epaphras was a faithful minister of Christ who carried the gospel to Colossae on Paul's behalf and obviously on behalf of the Colossians. In fact, some manuscripts have your behalf instead of our behalf here. Now, we learn in the fourth chapter that Epaphras was one of their number, probably a native Colossian. And we learn that he had a deep concern for the Colossians and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis, most likely carrying the gospel to those cities as well. Perhaps he had been a merchant visiting Ephesus while Paul was there, and, and he heard the gospel and became a Christian and took the gospel home, starting churches in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. He became a faithful preacher who cared about his people and taught them the truth. But apparently something came up in the church that caused him to travel over a thousand miles to Rome to visit Paul. Now, Paul mentions in the letter that Epaphras informed him and Timothy of their love in the Spirit. But he would have traveled that far just to say that. He must have told them some other things as well, and most feel that what he had to say wasn't good news. Now, Paul doesn't come out and say what it was, but if you read between the lines, you can see there was a problem in Colossae, and it apparently had to do with what they believed. In fact, many scholars refer to the problem in Colossae as the Colossian heresy. 
Deducing from what Paul says in the letter, most conclude that the Colossians had allowed Greek philosophy, Eastern mysticism, and Jewish legalism to pollute the gospel. They were taking what they thought to be the best of all religions and philosophies and mixing them all together to come up with something better yet. Well, that kind of thinking, I'm sure you realize, didn't disappear in the first century. It's very contemporary. We live in a pluralistic, syncretistic society that prides itself in being eclectic, assuming everyone has some truth, and the way to arrive at the ultimate truth is to just pool it all together. Now, that sounds gracious, and it makes for a very open society where everyone's ideas are valued, but it also undermines the gospel and the all-sufficiency of Christ. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And to add anything to the gospel is to demean it and to deny that it is, in fact, the truth. Now, that message is going to come through loud and clear as we study this powerful book. And as we take a good look at a supreme and all-sufficient Christ. And that is the theme of Colossians. The all-sufficient Christ. And I really like the way one commentator makes that very clear by piecing together what Colossians has to say about Christ in a very powerful paragraph. Colossians proclaims the absolute supremacy and soul sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It is, as Robertson says, Paul's full-length portrait of Christ. He is God's Son, the object of the Christian's faith, the Redeemer, the image of God, Lord of creation, head of the church, reconciler of the universe. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead, And under him every power and authority in the universe is subjected. He is the essence of the mystery of God, and in him all God's treasures of wisdom and knowledge lie hidden. He is the standard by which all religious teaching is to be measured, and the reality of the truth foreshadowed by the regulations and rituals of the Old Covenant. By his cross... He conquered the cosmic powers of evil, and following his resurrection, he was enthroned at the right hand of God. Our life now lies hidden with God in Christ. But one day, both he and we will be gloriously manifested. In short, the central thought of the epistle is summed up in the lines of Charles Wesley's hymn, Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. The all-sufficient Christ. 
There are a lot of voices in the world today telling us we need this and we need that. There are a lot of mystical, religious, cultic ideas that invade the church and are added to the gospel in an attempt to make it have more appeal to the masses. But doing so is to water down the truth of the gospel, to demean the sufficiency of Christ. Our goal is to know Christ better and better, and we have to know him better by being in his word, by communing with him, by fellowshipping with him in the spirit, and by being a part of his body, the church. Our goal is to just get to know Jesus better. And as we do that, we're changed. And the more we get to know him, the more we grow in him. The more we begin to reflect his character. We become like him. And again, if, if we're not changing into the image of Christ on a regular basis, something's wrong. We've lost sight of Jesus. It's my prayer that as we study this, this little book to an insignificant little town, our vision of Christ will be sharpened. And our likeness of him will become more evident. As we surrender our all, to the Lordship of an all-sufficient Christ. That's what Paul will be telling the saints in Colossae to do. And that's what he's telling the saints in Chatham to do as well. Let's commit ourselves to that as we stand and sing.